do whatever you need to do to see Isaiah 6 before your eyes as we ready ourselves to work our way through it together this morning. This has been something of a, a sentimental week of sermon prep. It's sentimental because the first sermon I ever preached at MPC was on this passage, Isaiah chapter 6. It was about nine years ago now. Hands up if you were here when I first arrived. Bless you for your patience. Someone said to me, are you just going to preach the same sermon again? And I pulled out my notes. No, okay? No. Don't make the same mistake twice, okay? Um, and so it's been, it's been a, a nice week for, for us to reflect upon just how kind God has been to us this past decade and how grateful we are for this church. You know, being a pastor at this church has been a, a blessing to me and to my family and that's a gift. You know, you know how rare that is for me to be able to say, this church, this has been good for my wife to be here been good for our kids to be here. We're, we're grateful, grateful for you, and excited to see what the next decade may hold as well. As a church, we've been uh, thinking about revival, thinking about this great theme of uh, revival. We've been trying to take an honest look at our own spiritual lives and challenging ourselves not just to go through the motions, not just to check the boxes, not just to play the Christian game. We don't want to do that. We want, to, we want, we want so much more. We want to live life without pretending. Whereby we're alive to God, awake to him, animated by his grace toward us. And this morning I want to share a connection that's made a huge difference in my own spiritual life. Namely, the connection that exists between worship and revival. The connection that exists between worship and revival. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word worship. Perhaps you think of unfamiliar songs that you don't really know how to sing. Uh, Perhaps you think of services that drag on as lunch calls your name. Uh, Perhaps you think of the preacher who just won't stop. Trust me, I feel your pain, okay? Uh, If you think it's rough listening to a bad sermon, imagine preaching a bad sermon, okay? Uh, You know the the, the only thing worse than preaching a bad sermon? having to preach it three times. Okay? <laughs> I've, I feel your pain. Right? I, I understand the, the challenge here. And worship for us can sometimes become a, a dead duty. The definition of going through the motions, of checking the right boxes, of playing the Christian game. And we don't want to do that. If we're going to do that, seriously, friend, let's leave and do brunch. Okay? Uh, that's not what we're here to do. No. Instead, we want to see this vital connection that exists in our text between worship and revival. Let's look at it together and see if it doesn't breathe some life into our bones and breathe some life into our worship. We'll see that this connection, worship, revival, this connection is made up of four things, four links in the chain, if you like. That worship leads to revival when it says four things. Four things Isaiah says of himself in the text and four things that that we can say as well. And revival happens in our lives when we say them. So let's look at these four things together. First, number one, worship that leads to revival says, verse one, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Did you show up this morning expecting to see God? Did you show up to this time ready to have 
an encounter with something greater than yourself? Did you show up anticipating that you would meet with God this morning? Perhaps our greatest need is to see God as he really is. And if we are struggling with a kind of spiritual sleepiness, with an apathy, a kind of spiritual mediocrity, you can bet a glimpse of God will wake us up. A glimpse of God will wake us up. Isaiah got such a glimpse. Let's pull back the curtain and see for ourselves. Verse 1 we read, In the year the king Uzziah died. It's a great start. It's a great start to this section. Why? Because King Uzziah was king for over 50 years. He brought unparalleled stability to the land. And then what? He died. Why? Because that's what we all do. And that's what all kings do. We all die, but not God. And so while Uzziah is in the ground, our God is to be found where? Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. He's on a throne. Why? Because he's the king. And not just any throne, a high and exalted throne. His throne is above all thrones because he is king above all kings. Whatever authorities may rule on this earth, they are all subservient to him. And whatever struggles may plague our lives, they are all subservient to him. He rules and reigns over all things. And because of this, we read that he's sitting. He's sitting on a throne. Why is he sitting? Because he's in control. In this amazing heavenly scene where there's all kinds of things going on and all kinds of creatures flying around and Isaiah having all these emotional responses, God just sits. Why? Because no vision of heaven ever caught a glimpse of God scurrying around trying to hold things together at the seams. You never see God cutting his grass. You never see God loading a truck. You never see God uh, filling out a report. You never see him in any way stressed or anxious. No, you see him sitting. Why? Because he is ruling and reigning over all things. And his power and his control and his authority are absolute. So sitting on this throne, and then we read that the train of his robe is filling the temple. The year before I was born, some 600,000 people filled the streets of London and nearly a billion more watched on from their TV sets at home as Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer. Now, as this young Diana, 20 years old, made her three-and-a-half-minute walk down the red-carpeted aisle of St. Peter's, the worldwide audience gasped at the beauty of the train on her dress. The train was some 25 feet long. That's the length of a London bus. <laughs> no wonder it took her three and a half minutes, right? That's like workout getting that thing down there. And uh, what did it do? It, it marked the significance of the occasion, and it marked her as, as a woman of, of splendor. Now, if 25 feet is long, God's train fills the temple. <laughs> God's train fills the temple. It's a picture of extravagant and excessive majesty. So imagine Diana's train, 25 feet long as it is, and then multiply it in your mind again and again and again until you can picture a train that flows from the wearer until it covers every surface in sight. 
That's the majesty and the beauty of our Lord. And so we see that when you see the Lord, your breath is taken away, not just because he's powerful, not just because he's the king who sits, but also because he's beautiful. Also because he is majestic. Do you see him this morning? Do you and I see him like Isaiah did? And we read in verses 2 and 3 that Isaiah is not the only one. The, the, the seraphs see him as well. Look with me. Above him, we read, above God, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now let's talk about these seraphs for a minute. Because often when we think about angelic creatures, we have a very placid, white, chubby picture in mind. And that's really not the picture we get here of the seraphs. We don't know a whole lot about them because this is the only passage in all of Scripture where they, where they make an appearance. But this passage gives us a couple of insights. First of all, from the word seraph itself. Seraph doesn't mean fat or chubby or white or angelic. Seraph literally means fiery ones. These are are, are burning creatures who zoom around in the presence of God like living meteors. Then secondly, we see not just the word itself, but the effect of their voices. You see it in verse 4, where their voices cause a mini earthquake. The foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called holy, holy, holy. So these creatures aren't puny. They're not childlike. They're not weak. They are majestic, powerful, beautiful creatures. In the book of Revelation, John twice tells us that he was confronted with an angel and he was so struck by this heavenly creature that he was tempted to fall down and worship it. And so just imagine that. If one of these seraphs flew in this window, this window right here, okay, and it zoomed over this side of the sanctuary and it singed the top of your hair. Some of you wondering, that's what's happened to me this week, right? Uh, it zoomed to the top of your hair, then flew down the center aisle, and then came and sat right beside you. You would be so struck. You'd be so overcome that you'd be tempted to worship this creature. These are magnificent beings that we'd be tempted to worship. And yet, what do they do? They worship God. They worship God. Look at what they say. Verse 3. They call out to one another. See, they're, they're awake and they're alive to his greatness. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy is a word that just means separate. So to say that God is holy is to say that he is he's separate. He is set apart. He's incomparable. He is unique. You see, when we describe God, this, this term holy becomes so important because as we're trying to describe God, human language always fails us. And so, yeah, I can tell you God is powerful, and I can tell you God is beautiful, and I can tell you God is worshipped by the fiery ones. And then we can add other things too, like God is good, and God is wise, and God is uh, love, and God is just, and God is kind. There's all sorts of things that we can do. We can go on and on to describe him, combining all the vocabulary that we can, until we get to the edge and we can't say any more. And the problem is that no matter how much we've said, 
He's so much more. And at that point, our words give way to worship, and we say, holy, holy, holy. We can't describe him because he's unlike anything else. Words don't do justice to his power, to his beauty, and so we call him holy. So, I love what the seraphs say, but secondly, and last thing on these seraphs, I also love what they do. Did you catch it in verse 2? In the presence of God, they have wings to cover their faces. Why? Because even for these powerful, beautiful, majestic creatures, there's something about being in God's presence that's so overwhelming that they can't bring themselves to look at him. That's how, how radiant is his glory. And don't you love it too? Don't you love that when God was creating seraphs, he thought, I need to give these dudes extra wings because they're going to be in my presence. And my glory is such that they're not going to be able to behold me. They're going to need a shield for their eyes. So here you go, six wings. Incredible description of what they say and of what they do. And I wonder... I wonder if we come to worship expecting to see that kind of God. Expecting to see the one that's worshipped by the seraphs. Expecting to see the one the seraphs themselves can't look at and yet we can call Father. Do we show up with a sense of purpose and intention and anticipation that something's going to happen in this time? That we'll see the Lord. If we have the eyes of faith to see past the thin veil that separates this world from the next. We'll see that God is real and that God is here. And if we see him, it will wake us up. Worship that leads to revival says, first, I saw the Lord. Say it with me. I saw the Lord. Number two, worship that leads to revival says, I saw the Lord. But then very quickly, worship that leads to revival will also say, verse 5, Woe is me. Woe is me. How do you know if you've really seen the Lord? Well, it, it, it humbles you. It humbles you, like it did for Isaiah. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Now, this word woe, it's not a word that we use much these days. It, it simply means cursed. So think of Jesus who will pronounce blessings and also then say woe to you so blessings and and curses Isaiah is saying I am cursed why he continues I am lost I am ruined undone destroyed there's no hope for me why for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips this is Isaiah's confession of sin he's saying I'm sinful when I see this great God, I am I'm contaminated, I am polluted, I am unclean. And not just me, but the world around me too. And so he ends, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees God, and you see what it does to him? Confronted with God's perfection, he is struck by his imperfection. When he comes into God's perfect light... He sees that he is not all that he is intended to be. I was having a a phone conversation with Rosie, my wife, this week in my office. 
Um, we're talking on the phone, and our kind of conversation kind of descended into an argument, you know, kind of like seamlessly, and uh, I was being just very stubborn, okay, just very stubborn in this conversation, and then something interesting happened. One of our staff members walked into our office, and my tone with Rosie changed like that, right? It's interesting, I hadn't really been aware of it before, but when someone else walked in, I kind of realized how I was being. The presence of another person shone a light on my sin. You see how in like a much, 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 much greater way, the presence of perfection shines a light on all our sins. We may not think of ourselves as bad people, and by some comparisons we might not be, but when you come into the presence of a perfect God, you quickly realize that we are sinful and fall short of his glory. Have you had that kind of experience of God? Have you seen him in a way that has led you to say, woe is me? That unmasking awareness that you're not all that you should be. That sense of failure as you think of your relationships or your marriage or your your parenting. That guilt or that shame as you think about those corners of your lives you would prefer to stay hidden. That sense of regret perhaps that that gnaws away in your, your quiet moments. We know that nature can make us feel physically small. You know when you see the, the ocean or the stars or a sunset. Well, in the same way that the supernatural should make us feel spiritually small. Unmasking our self-appraisal and showing us what we're really like. Confronting us with this harsh reality that like Isaiah, we're not fit for God's presence. We have no wings to cover our eyes. So worship that leads to revival first says, I saw the Lord. But if you really do, then you'll also say, woe is me. Let's say it together. Woe is me. Now, why does that lead to revival? Why does a sense of sin lead to revival? Well, let's follow the connection. If we say, I saw the Lord, we'll say, woe is me. And if you say, woe is me, then you'll be able to say the third thing we see in our text. Number three, worship that leads to revival says, verse seven, he touched my mouth. He touched my mouth. Perhaps the least obvious, but perhaps my favorite of Isaiah's phrases. In verse six, he describes how a seraph flew over to the altar. This is the place of sacrifice, the place where sin was atoned for. The altar is the place where animal after animal after animal would be offered up to the Lord, blood to cover the sins of the people. And then he pictures, can you picture it? The seraph with a pair of tongs. Isn't that a great detail? Takes a coal from the fire. And then swoops over to Isaiah and symbolically touches Isaiah's lips with this burning coal. The point of Isaiah's sin, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, is now touched. And he's told, verse 7, see it there? Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Aren't those beautiful words? I love it because God doesn't come to Isaiah in his fear and in his trembling and kind of give him a pep talk, you know? Hey, Isaiah, things aren't so bad. I know you're doing your best. 
prophet in Israel, really trying hard, good work. Just, you know, keep on, power of positive thinking. And, and you know, the, the, just let that beauty that's inside of you shine for all to see. Okay? <laughs> no. The Lord doesn't show up with a pep talk. The Lord shows up with a solution. The Lord says, Isaiah, you are sinful. And Isaiah, you're not fit for my presence. But Isaiah, you're valuable to me. And so I am acting to make you fit for my presence. I am doing what it takes that you might be before me. And why do we love this? Because we know he didn't just do that for Isaiah, right? He's also done that for us. In case we miss the connection, John chapter 12 makes it really clear for us in the New Testament. Here John has been reflecting upon Isaiah's vision and he actually quotes from this chapter, from chapter 6. And then he says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things, said all that's written in chapter 6 of Isaiah, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. You catch that? Isaiah wrote chapter 6 because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So according to the scriptures, the vision that's before us now is, yes, a vision of God, but it's specifically a vision of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. So everything that we've said about God is true of him, of course, but it's more specifically true of Christ. That Jesus is overwhelmingly powerful. He is that king who sits on his throne. And Jesus is overwhelmingly beautiful. He is the one whose train fills the temple. And Jesus is the one who is worthy of worship from these fiery seraphs. And yet Jesus is the one who left all of Isaiah 6 behind. He leaves this throne room. He leaves this vision. He leaves this heaven. He leaves this power, this beauty, this worship in order to come to earth. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Now, why did he come? Answer, to touch our lips. Not by taking a coal from the altar but by offering himself on the altar that's the grace of the gospel that Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God so in this sanctuary where is the altar answer we don't have one (laughs) why because there's no more sacrifice for sin we have no altar We have a cross, and it's empty. To remind us of these truths, to remind us that he has dealt with our sin, he has dealt with our guilt, he has taken our woe upon himself. So, if you have seen the Lord and you have said, woe is me, if you have a sense of of failure, a sense of shame and guilt, a sense of regret about your life, when you have faith in Jesus, then when you are tempted to say, woe is me, Jesus says, no. Woe is me on your behalf. See, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Worship that leads to revival doesn't stop with woe is me, but moves to he touched my mouth. Say it with me. He touched my mouth. 
Now, in that uh, long context, we can see the final uh, link in our our chain, the, the chain that connects worship and revival. I saw the Lord, woe is me, he touched my mouth. And so, in light of all these things, worship that leads to revival says, verse 8, here am I, send me. You see it there? The voice of the Lord goes out seeking those who will be used by him. And Isaiah, he just can't contain himself. He's like, me, 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 me. Hey, hey, coach, put me in, put me in. I'm ready. I'm ready and I'm willing to go wherever you will send me. I'm ready to be used by you, whatever the task, whatever the cost. Now, note the, the connection, the chains, the flow, the order here is important. You will not say, here am I. Send me. Unless you have first said, I saw the Lord. Woe is me, but he's touched my mouth. It's, it's understanding that, see, just in light of who God is, we are, we're, we're crushed, we're lost, we're undone, we're ruined. But in light of what he's done for us, we're revived. It's his grace toward us that changes everything. It's his grace that animates us and empowers us and enables us to say, here am I, send me, and follow in this path of obedience. Paul puts it this way when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. And so if you believe in this Christ and have seen the Lord and have seen your woe and have had him touch your lips, the question this morning is, um, where, where is he sending you? The question isn't, is he sending you somewhere? The, the question is, is where? Where is he calling you to go in light of his goodness to you? Is he calling you toward perhaps some kind of sacrifice in your vocation and your lifestyle Perhaps some kind of sacrifice with your time. Giving something up to serve him like he gave everything up to serve you. Perhaps he's calling you toward that difficult person. That difficult relationship. That difficult marriage, perhaps. Calling you to love them unconditionally as he has loved you unconditionally. Or perhaps he's calling you away from something. Away from that and persistent sin that's been in your life these days, these weeks, these months. Uh, calling you to take extreme measures to flee from it, like he took extreme measures to flee to us. He's certainly calling all of us away from, from our spiritual sleepiness, away from our half-hearted devotion that can only be replaced by a full-hearted devotion to him in light of who he is and all that he's done for us. Isaiah worshipped and revival happened. He wasn't spiritually sleepy. Isaiah's not sleepy here. He's alive and he's awake and he's animated. He's ready to be used, whatever the task, whatever the cost. And this same God that he saw is here with us this morning. And we have everything we need by his grace to do the same. Worship that leads to revival says, Here am I, send me. Say it with me. Here am I, send me. When we worship aright, revival happens. And there's no brunch that's better than that. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this uh, powerful section of your word and that fourfold pattern that we see. And we thank you, Lord, for this church and this congregation where we get to rehearse this pattern week by week, starting as we do every week by saying, I saw the Lord as we come to you in prayer and hear your call to worship and and sing songs of praise and, and adoration. And after seeing you, Lord, together we say, woe is me, as we confess our sins. And yet, Lord, the the second we do that, we also uh, are together able to say, he touched my mouth, as we are assured of our pardon. And then in light of this gospel, Lord, in light of this goodness, we uh, pray for one another. We give of our lives and our resources. We're sent out into this world through our song, of sending. Lord, our usefulness uh, in the kingdom is, is dependent upon, tied to our ability to see you and see our sin and see our grace. But all those things are <laughs> alive and well this morning. So overwhelm us with them all, that together we might say, here, here am I, send me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.